0: Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Okay, before we get into anything, I just have to give a shout out to our newest Patreon supporter, Felice. If you're listening, and I hope I pronounced your name correctly, thank you so much. I can't tell you how much it means to us, the support we've gotten on Patreon. And although our numbers on Patreon are small at this point, every time there's some support, It's like a personal thing for me. So that being said, let's get on with it. Here's the deal, folks. As you may be able to tell, um, I'm not doing too great in the vocal category here. I actually completely lost my voice on Thursday. Such is the cost of basically talking for a living. Um, After cross-country flights, three days of full eight-hour workshops, and... A red eye home, my voice decided to give up on me. And actually, I just kind of got it back this morning. So, that being said, I'm really excited this week to bring our guest, Alan Weiss, as he talks about his new book, Fearless Leadership Overcoming Reticence, Procrastination, and the Voices of Doubt Inside Your Head. Now, I got to say, Alan, he's a trip, man. He's no nonsense. He is unapologetic, he is self assured confident, um, but he is also successful. And I spent some time prior to this interview reading much of his book. I listened to some podcasts that he did. He's articulate. Alan is a consultant, speaker, and author. His consulting firm, Summit Consulting Group, has attracted clients such as Merck, Hewlett-Packard, GE, plenty of the top Fortune 500 companies. He is an inductee into the Professional Speaking Hall of Fame. And he has been named a fellow of the Institute of Management Consultants. And if you look online, often he is referred to as one of the biggest independent consultants in the world. Now, one thing I've learned over the years is to be very careful about titles. After receiving thousands and thousands of bios for people to be on the show, you know, really anybody can make anybody sound great. That being said, I do believe... Alan is the real deal when it comes to speaking, writing, consulting. I will also say that anybody who writes 64 books has more to say than I could ever imagine. But that is the beauty of this podcast because I don't think I asked all the exact questions I wanted. I don't think I got to the heart of some of the things I wanted, but he is providing me a perspective. I love his idea about just put it out there. What could go wrong? Now, I haven't fully thought through what could go wrong. I'm sure there are plenty of things, but that's not how I operate. I tend to mull over things, overthink, perfect in my brain, You know, play out scenarios, ask too many people for their opinions. Clearly, that's what this podcast is. And by talking to people like Alan, I become more well-rounded. I see the other side and I see what I like and maybe what I don't like about it. I am extremely interested to hear from you. What is your feedback? And what I mean feedback is, what did you think about the interview? What do you wish we would have talked about? What'd you think about Alan? And what'd you take away? That's always helpful. Remember, you can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com or you can email us directly at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. So with that, this ended up being longer than I thought, but I just recorded this interview. It left me with a lot of thoughts. Time for me to go digest them. I hope you do the same. We are talking with Alan Weiss about his brand new book, Fearless Leadership, Overcoming Reticence, Procrastination, and the Voices of Doubt Inside Your Head. Enjoy. You know, I definitely want to dig into your brand new book, Fearless Leadership, but I want to start with, you have a a really varied and distinguished career. One of the things I read was 64 books. And I kind of want to start with, how does anyone write 64 books?
2: Well, I I kid people by saying I go for volume and not accuracy, but unfortunately, some people think that's true. So (laughs) uh, you go about it because, A, you love to write. I love to write. Uh, B, i think that uh, books create awareness you know no one ever learned to ski or ride a bike by reading a book but you read a book and say hey maybe i should learn to ski uh and thirdly you know in my business in my profession uh they're they're highly credible and this whole idea that books are going out of style and so forth is just malarkey i mean it's just ridiculous Uh, so i advise my clients now my entrepreneurial clients that really they need to write a book about every every 18 months or they're going to fall behind the curve wow How do you churn
1: out that much information? Because I want to get into this, but how are you able to kind of fight that voice that might say, I don't have any more to say, or I can't put something out every 18 months, or maybe this isn't my best work? Things along those lines.
2: Oh, that's a good question. I think there are three responses I have. The first is that I never self-edit. I never say, should I have said that differently? Gee, I said there were seven key points, are there nine or five. I never do that. I just write from my head to the screen based on the topic. Uh, and I never doubt myself and I never question myself. And guess what? Neither do the editors. I mean, I still don't know the difference between which and that. And they'll correct that kind of thing. But uh, they never correct my content. And they, they, you know, they might tell me I told the story twice and that's about it. The second thing is that the, there is a little guy on your shoulder. I write about this little guy in Fearless Leadership, as you point out. And the guy keeps telling us why we're not good enough and we don't deserve it and we can't do that. But in Fearless Leadership, what I tell people is you can convert this guy. And you convert them to somebody who says, you've done this before, you can do it again. The, the empirical evidence is you can do this. And a lot of my best coaching clients, I mean, people making well into seven figures as entrepreneurs, uh, I have I open the, the discussion with all empirical evidence to the contrary, meaning they think they can't do something, even though all the empirical evidence points out that they can. So that's a little guy in the shoulder bit. And then the third thing is that uh, you have to understand that We're not changing the course of Western civilization here. You know, several years ago, somebody uh, got on a keyboard and actually rewrote A Tale of Two Cities. uh, Not rewrote it. I mean, they just retyped it. But instead of putting Dickens' name on it, they put their own name on it and they submitted it to five publishers. And every one of those acquisition editors rejected it.
1: Wow.
2: Yeah, I mean, so just because somebody rejects a book proposal or says, yeah, I'm not sure this is right, doesn't mean it's not good. It just means on that particular day, this person wasn't interested and you move on.
1: I think at the core of it is this uh, idea of ego. And I know you mentioned a, a great part about how we tend to put ego at the front of the ship when it should be down in the cargo hold. And that resonated for me. And as we talk about writing books, how much of it do you think is the fact that when we put art out into the world in whatever way, it could be a podcast, it could be a YouTube video, a blog post so much of ourselves are attached to it and if people reject what we create then in a sense we feel they are rejecting us and do you think there's any validity in that belief
2: oh there's a lot of validity in that that's how people operate i don't think the belief is true but i think it's a belief that people have and in fact one of the greatest fears that people have at all levels executive suite plant floor sales force finance is fear of rejection people don't ask for referrals even though they've helped the client successfully because (laughs) they're afraid the client will say, no, I won't give you a referral. They fear this stuff. The same thing, this great myth about being afraid of public speaking, you know, or writer's block, these are simply myths, is there's a fear of rejection. What you have to understand is you're not trying to sell somebody something and take something away from them. You're trying to give them value and improve their lives. And so instead of being an intruder, you're being someone who's there to help them. And consequently, it all starts with your mindset. You know, I'll tell you something. In the morning, I'm convinced that some people get up and say, another great day. I wonder what I can accomplish. And some people get up and say, oh, God, another long, slow crawl through enemy territory.
1: I mean, I feel like I've experienced both of those things. But I guess to the point about this belief that when we put something out into the world, others are judging us, what I'm trying to determine is, is there no value in me thinking that way? So partly this is selfish, but I know a lot of people deal with this. I'm in the middle of trying to write a book, trying to finally get it out of my head, and and it's stuck up there right in this it-has-to-be-perfect thing. But what I've tried to convince myself is that, well, what I'm really doing is I'm aggregating my thoughts so I can put the best possible thing out there which will really add value and not just be more noise. And I'm wondering, is that just more of the little guy on the shoulder Or is it helping me create a better end product?
2: No, it's not helping you at all. There are two responses here. One is the fact that perfection kills excellence. Number two is that it's the fear that you'll do something that will be critiqued, which overcomes the fear of being critiqued for not moving forward. It's an interesting dynamic. And consequently, we deny the world the benefit of our knowledge and our expertise. There are people who will not speak up at a meeting till they have the perfect sentence in mind. And by the time they do, the conversation's moved on. On the other hand, every morning when I let my dogs out in the backyard here, they have the exact same reaction. Oh my God, the yard. Look at this. The yard is here. And they have another great day. We have to enjoy life and not be frightened by it. Which gets to the underlying theme of this book, this fearless
1: leadership. Would you say it's just that we're all operating off of an old evolutionary basis of fear that is no longer necessary?
2: Well, a lot of people like to talk about that. I, I touch on it in the book, you know, that it's about uh, somebody afraid that a woolly mammoth's going to come and step on them. But the fact of the matter is we develop phobias. We're afraid of spiders, uh, 99.9% of which are absolutely harmless. We're afraid of snakes, 95% of which are absolutely harmless. We're afraid to speak publicly, but the audience is really there to support you. Nobody wants to go home and say, what a great hour I just had. I saw somebody go down in flames. So we create these fears today because basically there's so much, you know, right now there's no right to privacy anymore. Everything can be recorded. Uh, private sessions, live mics can be recorded and exposed. We're just afraid of our own shadow. Uh, this past a week ago here. Uh, our smaller dog chased the ducks on the ice, tried to put on the brakes, and slid into the frigid water. It's about five feet deep, but it's a two-acre pond. And I plunged in, fully dressed, my iPhone in my pocket, my wallet in my pocket. You don't think about these things. I didn't want the dog to get hypothermia. I wanted her to keep looking at me, and I kept screaming. And halfway to her, I couldn't move anymore. And my shepherd jumped in to try to save me. Meanwhile, my wife called 911. Wow. Got the shepherd out. The cops got me out. And a firefighter in an all-weather outfit went and got the the dog out. But you you do what you have to do. You don't stop and and make a plan and think about it. You had to save this. I had to save this dog. And, you know, Kobe Bryant, as we're talking, was just killed in a helicopter crash. I mean, who would have thought it? When your time comes, your time comes. And so we need to be bold about life. You only come this way once. If you're going to write a book, for God's sake, no one is gonna line you up and and publicly humiliate you because they don't like it. And when people come to me and say, hey, you know, Alan, I read your book. There are seven typos. I tell them, no, no, go back there at 12. It ruins (laughs) it.
1: Let's go back to this analogy you used or the story about the dog. And and we can make it analogous to a lot of different uh, leaders and this failure to act based on fear. And let me just play devil's advocate. Imagine that the firefighters didn't get to you in time, you would have died. And I think if if we could ask you po- post mortem, do you
2: wish you did something different? You probably would have said yes. So you, hold on. Yeah. Your basic premise is wrong. Uh, I was not immobile. I would not have died. I wouldn't I would have gotten out of that pond either through my own auspices because I could still move or my shepherd would have grabbed me or my wife would have thrown the boat in the water and come to get me. I wouldn't have died Uh, okay that's a catastrophizing outlook but it's important that you mention that because people look at the most minor thing like talking back to the boss like asking someone for a favor and they catastrophize oh god i'll get in trouble i'll appear ignorant uh i'm asking for a favor i'll need to return the favor they'll think i'm incompetent and that's exactly the problem it's never as bad as we think
1: it is i see so it's oftentimes what what you're pushing against is this idea that really think about worst case scenario these days, not that bad of an outcome.
2: Well, that's right. And if I'm willing to go into a freezing pond to try to save my dog, uh, I think you should be willing to walk into a meeting and voice your damn opinion. Yeah. And this was another thing I thought about as
1: I was reading your book. As a consultant, you get to see these things. You have a, a lifetime of experience, and I think it's really important to talk about that experience or else it can seem like a lot of sweeping generalities, right? So we all do this and this is the outcome. But without the the stories or the experience to back it, sometimes we might not know. So tell us a little bit about where you formulate all of this. Like, what is your laboratory? What are you doing on a day-to-day basis to formulate the thoughts and ideas that go into things like this new book?
2: Well, I'll tell you a few things here. The first is that Uh, If you simply are willing to look around and be curious, you learn all kinds of things. Uh, And by looking around and being curious, I'm always asking myself, why? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? What's the evidence? Are these things connected? You know, etiology is the science of cause and effect. So let's just take public speaking. How many times, now forget the amount of experience of your audience right now, just have every audience, every listener ask themselves, every audience member ask themselves, how many speeches have you been at where the audience heckled the speaker? How many speeches have you been at where the audience was openly opposed to the speaker? It practically never happens outside of politics. And consequently, the audience is with you. That's the empirical evidence. I'll tell you something else. You know, a a woman I respect a great deal said to me, "You know, the thing about you is you're very intellectually curious. And I'm a spiritual person. I mean, I happen to be a religious person, but being spiritual is different from religion. And by spiritual, I mean, I connect to the world around me. I watch what my dogs do. I watch the squirrels out on the bird feeders. I take a look at how uh, these plants are situated. I I ask myself why people do certain things in certain circumstances. You know, you ever watch somebody come down a, a down escalator and stop to look around as people are piling up behind them? Or people stop in the entrance when they leave a play as everybody's trying to get through the doors? They're oblivious. They're completely oblivious to the world around them. I'm not. I'm sensitive to the world around me. And consequently, if you have a healthy sense of curiosity, you see things that other people don't see and then you apply that. So the sequence is, there's data all around us. We talk about big data, but if we combine it, we put it into useful information. And if you have enough useful information, you create knowledge. And when you have knowledge, you're gonna win most situations. But when you combine knowledge and make it wisdom, then you can anticipate and plan for the future. But not enough people are wise. Why are people not accumulating wisdom? Take a look at social media. Take a look, I mean, if you wanna feel good, just read Facebook or LinkedIn. There's one nonsense on there that I could possibly make up. It's crap. And the reason is people are dealing with superficiality. They don't deal with original sources. They deal with secondary and tertiary sources. They suffer from confirmation bias. They only listen to people who agree with them. They won't listen to people who don't agree with them, which is why we have polarization in this country today. Mm -hmm. We're unwilling to listen. And so consequently, we don't look beyond our noses. We don't do anything in depth. And that's why we don't achieve a state of wisdom. We barely have knowledge anymore.
1: I mean, that's in a nutshell, the basis of this podcast is to just get people such as yourself on and just listen. And I think if you're willing to seek it out, there's also plenty of opportunities that this technology has presented us with to listen, to gain wisdom. Would you say that's true?
2: I would. I think you have to pick and choose and you have to be selective. You know, somebody joins me in in LinkedIn and the next day is soliciting me with something I don't need. Imagine telling me. Oh, gee, Alan, I can help you build your brand. I have the strongest brand of any independent consultant in the world. He's going to help me build my brand. So I say to him, this is not the way to market for these reasons. And it's what he does instead of learning, instead of gaining knowledge from me for free, he argues with me, you know, (laughs) that's the level of stupidity out there. So I agree with you. If you're careful and you have that kind of insight and that kind of care, you can learn from these experiences. But most people don't.
1: Well, I got to say, Alan, you just hit on something that I feel like I've learned over a decade of this show, and I feel like it is a superpower, and it is the understanding that you can learn a lot from other people. You don't have to, and you don't have to believe it, and you don't have to prove yourself right. You can just listen. Why do we always feel we have to attach our belief system to somebody else's advice, comments, Expertise, Right. So we interviewed a guy who was talking about ethics and he said he tries to go into every interaction with no opinions. And he said it's a much better way to go about life is to just basically say, I don't have opinions until they're needed because we can then open ourselves up to listen to others without that ego being present.
2: Well, no, no offense, but I don't agree with that at all, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, Most people want to deal with me because of the intellectual capital I bring to the situation. And so <clears throat> I have opinions, I have views. I don't ask that you, you have to agree with me, but uh, people hire me and they want to work with me because I have opinions and I have views, and I want to hear about my intellectual capital. Uh, and I think it's hard not to have opinions on things. We all have beliefs. But the key is, you know, I've changed my beliefs on a lot of things as I've matured, as I've aged, as I've seen new things, had new experiences. The key is to be flexible enough to change. Mm. Uh, and that, I think, is is a r- relatively rare human trait. We get into these uh, ironclad positions and it gives us security. You have to have a very strong ego to admit that you're wrong and want to change. I'll tell you something else, though. The only real feedback that's valuable is solicited feedback. That is feedback from people we respect. Unsolicited feedback make you a ball in one of these, you know, Chinese, uh, I think they're Japanese pachinko machines uh, or, or a ping pong ball. Unsolicited feedback is always for the sender. And so if you want to listen to feedback, listen to people you respect.
0: And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Indeed. When you start your hiring process, you may have questions. Will you find good applicants to choose from? What about education and experience? And how will you know you've made the right hire? Indeed is here to help. Millions of great candidates use Indeed every day to find their next opportunity. You can post a job in minutes and use screener questions to help create your shortlist of applicants fast. Also, add skills tests to your job posts so you can be confident in your applicants' abilities. Their library of more than 50 skills tests ranges from industry-specific skills like accounting to general aptitude tests like critical thinking. Indeed gives you the smart tools to make hiring decisions quickly and to be confident that you're making the right hire for your team. Post your job today at Indeed.com SPP and get a free sponsored job upgrade on your first posting. That's Indeed.com SPP. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Offer valid through March 31st, 2020. And now back to the episode. As a consultant,
1: people hire you for your opinions and that for your knowledge, really. Um, What is the number one thing people hire you for? What are these leaders asking or what do they need?
2: What they, what they hire me for is validation. You yeah. know, I've been doing this for 30 some odd years and I've worked with, I don't know, maybe 250 of the Fortune 500 over that time and thousands of top executives and thousands of top entrepreneurs. And 90% of the time uh, I've been dealing with validation, you're doing it well, this is right, correct, don't worry about it and and go ahead. Only 10% of the time did I have to provide innovation or a correction or tell them they were in danger or something was wrong. And so people are insecure at the highest levels and they want somebody whose retirement plan is invested in the operation, who's not looking for the corner office, who's not a yes person to tell them that everything's okay. I know
1: that was in a nice, short little answers, because if that were the entirety of it, what makes you so good at that is the, is the interesting part.
2: I can do it immediately. And in some fact, sometimes I've had to take extra time just for credibility's sake, but I can see things other people can't because I don't come in with a lot of biases mm. I look for cause and effect. Most people look for blame. It's a big difference. Uh, I look for distinctions. Most people look for commonality. I have different critical thinking skills, and I can walk into almost any place and tell you in very short order how things are. If anything has to change, what it would be, and so forth. And because I can do it so quickly and so incisively, and back it up with examples, my my advice is is highly regarded. When was
1: the tipping point? Because obviously, nobody comes out of university like that. How did how did you get to that point?
2: I, I think it was maybe thirty years ago in my forties. You know, I had been consulting at that point for about 20 years uh, for a firm in Princeton, and then a a firm here in Rhode Island I was president of, which I got fired from, you know. And uh, what I found was I no longer had to prove myself. I was very preoccupied before that with proving myself, immaturely, showing I was good. And I got to a point where I just realized I'm damn good. I don't have to prove it. My actions demonstrate it. And so let's just let things flow. And once I did that, I found that these executives at the highest levels in these powerful companies, really found this straight shooting, uh, blunt, candid kind of assessment extraordinarily valuable because even when they were getting feedback that could be valuable within the company, it came wrapped in so many layers, it took forever to unpack it.
1: I was just thinking that. I was thinking I can 100% understand how your style resonates with somebody who doesn't get straightforward, honest,
2: unbiased feedback. Right. And with, with me, what you see is what you get. And so if at the outset, when we're first meeting or chatting about a project, if you don't like my style, it ends there because you're not going to be a good client. Right. And so that's fine. But if what you see and what you hear is acceptable, then we're going to make beautiful music together.
1: Hmm. I'm going to get into fearless leadership, but I really, I wanted to spend some time just given, as you mentioned, uh, the success as an independent consultant. You mentioned having one of the, best brands and building your brand. What advice would you give to people, you know, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, right? Service-based individuals maybe out there who are trying to build that brand. How do we go about doing it?
2: Well, first, I'll give you two definitions. Uh, the, the sort of technical definition of a brand is that it's a uniform representation of quality. So wherever you are, you know what you're going to get in a McDonald's. You don't go in there to browse, you know, you go in there, you already know you're going in what you're going to order. But my favorite uh, definition of a brand is it's how people think about you when you're not around. And so no matter where you are in your profession, it's never too early and never too late to build your brand because what you want is people to default to you. It's one thing if people say, get me an outstanding strategist and my name is in the hat. It's much better if they say, get me Alan Weiss. And that co-ops all the competition. So you build a brand by being in what I call the public square. And that's why you have, if you look at, Marshall Goldsmith or Seth Godin or Marcus Buckingham or any of my peers, right? All of us really thought leaders heading up different uh, different uh, professional groups, but at the top of the game, it, we're all publishing like crazy. We're all speaking like crazy. Uh, we're quoted all the time. I mean, this is not uh, a mystery. You have to be in the public square producing new intellectual property and making predictions and acting like an expert. Will you always be right? No, but you have to have the courage to say to people, this is the way to go. I'm really just taking it in.
1: And I love it because it does feel counter to how I often act. I do some consulting as well. And and we talk about balancing courage and consideration. And I really think that this is a lot of what you're talking about is being willing to listen, being flexible, being able to shape your opinions based on new information, but having the courage to go out there and be putting your opinion, your ideas into the world without fear of maybe getting one or a few of the small things incorrect?
2: Well, here, here's what it comes down to. You know, I talk about this in a lot of my books, and that is we're, we're too intent on being liked instead of respected. And uh, experts can best help people when they are respected. I don't care if people like me. I mean, I prefer <laughs> they like me. I don't want them to dislike me, but it doesn't matter to me. You know, if you want, if you want unconditional love, get a dog. You know, I have two dogs. <laughs> so, uh, but, but it's respect that we should go after. And consequently, when people rather would, would rather be liked, what they try is not to lose the business instead of trying to get the business. And if you try not to lose business, it's like this prevent defense in football. It's guaranteed to lose the game. Do you
1: think respect is earned through value, but being liked is something you can create through just personality?
2: I do. And if yeah. you put this on a double axis chart, uh, if somebody likes you but doesn't respect you a whole lot, you know you're an occasional chum you know mm-hmm. uh, if, if somebody uh, respects you doesn't particularly like or dislike li- like you you know you're an expert like an expert witness in a trial. now right. if somebody both likes you and respects you, you know you could be a trusted advisor, and that's fine. but more people will make their decision based on respecting your expertise than whether they like you or not and so we need to focus on what's important here. Peter Drucker you know, the seminal thinker in strategy, he invented modern strategy, was a, an incorrigible, you know, <laughs> tough, tough guy who didn't care at all if people liked him. He had this Germanic kind of accent. Uh, you know, we, my, my first book I wrote with a partner was on innovation and he had a book out on innovation and we wanted to make sure that we weren't, you know, inadvertently even copying his ideas and we called him and he picked up his own phone at, I don't know, Claremont University in California And we said, you know, Dr. Drucker, we're thinking of doing this and your book is on that. And he said, I don't give a damn what you do. And he hung up. Wow. I said to my partner, "Okay, let's take that. Let's take that as approval.
1: (laughs) Wow. You live in the world of executives, senior leadership, million dollar decisions. Do you think that that really is the tunnel in which you see things through?
2: No? No. No, and I'll tell you something, you know, my, my son has a habit of saying to me, you know, my son's uh, 45, he's, uh, he's, he's in the business with another company, mm-hmm. uh, he's, he's very good at what he does, training and communications, he's also got excellent acting background, you know, he's directed things, but my son says, well, dad, you don't live in the real world anymore, you know, because you've got this income and you, you, you do this and you do that, and I say to him, first of all, how the hell do you think I got here? Right. And secondly, I'm coaching people all over the world every day, in every way, who are at all different stages of the profession, including just starting out? In fact, I run a program called Getting Started in Consulting based on one of my books. I just had a sell out in Boston. I'm going to have a sell out in LA in April. And so I know what, what's at both ends of this continuum. Uh, I know uh, how, what people are doing who aren't dealing with multi million dollar decisions and, and executives making millions. And the fact is, the the, the model isn't essentially different in that people need to know how to make objective decisions. They need to to know how to solve problems and not just find blame. Uh, They need to understand uh, that they have to make tough decisions about people uh, if they're going to be effective as a leader. And consequently, uh, it doesn't matter how much money you're playing with. What matters is what your behaviors are and what your discipline is like.
1: Because I was just thinking, with the business mentality, how that bleeds over into other things you do. This idea of we get things done, we move forward, we focus on facts, we focus on respect and adding value. How does that translate into non-professional relationships?
2: Well, it translates beautifully because it keeps perspective. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, I I I have a lot of hobbies. I have dozens of hobbies, you know, and and I pursue them. I only work about 20 hours a week, really. And uh, I bought a house 10 minutes less, five minutes from my house here. I rent out the house, but it's got a private carriage house with private parking, which I kept. And in there, I have a 40 by 40, think about that, Lionel train layout. It's huge. All the stuff I couldn't afford as a kid. <laughs> it's a huge operating ladder. It's very have been in some magazines, but I have some problems with it. And it's therapy for me. I'm not trying to make it perfect. It has crashes. It has small fires. It has, you know, stuff that comes apart and doesn't work, just like a real railroad. And it's my universe. And I have a guy who comes up from Connecticut now who does some of the electrical work for me, which I can't handle. And, you know, I'm patient and I know it's never going to be perfect, but it's going to be fun and it's therapy and that's its purpose. And that's why it's good. And so that's that's how I apply my ideals to that. On the other hand, six months ago, they they asked me to be president of the local ballet up here, which festival ballet, which is an excellent ballet. But like a lot of arts groups, you know, has a lot of financial problems. And I started running it like a business. And I applied my business acumen to running the ballet. And my wife, who's been on the ballet board forever, said after the first board meeting, we've never had a board meeting like that. I said, we'll get used to it. <laughs> <where> we're going. <laughs> uh, And now people are falling in line and the place is being run like a business and we're solvent uh, and we're making business decisions. So if you have the discipline and the focus, you apply it wherever you want to apply it.
1: You know, obviously you mentioned around your 40s is when you feel like you really started to trust yourself. Let's go back even further. When did you start consulting?
2: Uh, I joined a training firm in Princeton uh, in the 70s. I was about 26.
1: Okay. So let's go there, like mid-20s-ish. What would you tell yourself? You know, if you could go back and talk to that person, because I'm so interested in your growth and and what made you successful and if you would impart any wisdom on that 25-year-old starting this journey?
2: Oh, I tell him to stop killing people. You know, I, I, I had the linguistic skills even back then uh, to walk into a room and metaphorically kill everyone. And so I would walk into a room, I'd shoot everyone, and then I'd say, fine, now we're going to do this my way. And <laughs> so, you know, I exerted a lot of influence, but I was detested and uh, I wasn't all that happy either. Uh, and, uh, it took me a long time to learn that, uh, even though I had these skills, you know, you talked about superpowers before, even though I had these skills, uh, they were best used in, uh, in part and piecemeal and, and conditionally and, uh, and not, you know, and every time you see a mosquito, you don't swing the big guns around.
1: The self-assuredness to have that even at 25 is rare. Where did that come from?
2: Well, you know, I was born poor. I mean, my parents would argue over how to pay the $40 rent on this apartment we lived in, uh, but I went to public schools all my life, and um, in public schools, you learn to cope. And so in grammar school back then, you learned reading and and writing and arithmetic. You really did. I can diagram a sentence today. I know the eight parts of speech. Uh, today, you don't learn that anymore in grammar school. I went to high school, inner city high school, and, you know, there were, they were uh, bullies, and they they said, give me a quarter or you won't get into your locker. And they pushed you around and you dealt with that. You didn't go running to the principal. You didn't call the ACLU. Uh, you didn't file some kind of grievance. You dealt with that. And, and you learned street smarts. Uh, and then I went to Rutgers, which um, is, I think, one of the one or two most diverse campuses in the country uh, today. And even back then, probably more so. And I, I learned how to deal with all kinds of different people, uh, both professors and students. But the thing was, you know, I, I majored in political science, but I had a liberal arts curriculum, and they don't teach liberal arts anymore. And so I had to take science. I had to take physical fitness. I had to take another language for two or three years. I had to learn things outside of my major. And I was graduated as a, as a very well-rounded young person. I had a full scholarship to Rutgers Law, a full boat, a great law school. And thank God I turned that down.
1: It's funny, the thing you said about they don't teach liberal arts anymore. I mean, they do, just not on as large a scale. Is that what you're saying?
2: No, what I'm saying is it's not really liberal arts. They're not demanding you take science. I mean, I minor in geology. Cause mm-hmm. they, they, they don't really demand languages of you. And today, the professors have agendas. Yes. And, you know, and 85 95% of the time, there's a political agenda. There's a liberal agenda. I'm, I'm not against liberalism. but I, what, what I am against is, is a lack of free speech. Mm. Uh, I, I'm against the bias that's drilled into people by people who have tenure and can't be moved out of there. And so uh, I really had a freewheeling, wide, widely spread diverse kind of learning experience from my colleagues, from the other students and from the faculty. And I don't think that's so available anymore, frankly.
0: And now a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Warby Parker. Werby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique-quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. The Warby Parker aesthetic is vintage-inspired with a contemporary twist. Every pair is custom-fit with anti-reflective, polycarbonate prescription lenses. Available exclusively through Warby Parker's website and retail stores, glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Amanda's the glasses wearer in our family, so we sat down together to go through the Warby Parker quiz to figure out what her style and aesthetic is. After taking the quiz, she picked out five pairs of glasses for the home try-on program. And just a few days later, they were at our house, she was trying them on and having me pick out which ones were my favorite. And now the only problem is, I have to convince her to keep only one pair. So listen up, glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses, Lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. You can try out Werby Parker's glasses with their free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses and try them on for free for five days. There's absolutely no obligation to buy. It ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Head to werbyparker.com smart to take the quiz and order your free home try-on. And now, Warby Parker even has contact lenses, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. Comfortable, breathable, and affordable daily contact lenses. Made from super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more at warbyparker.com smart. Again, that's Warby Parker dot com slash smart, and now back to the episode. And, and what it sounds like
1: then is you use those opportunities to shape your beliefs, so that when you entered the professional environment, you felt confident enough in your previous experience to at least you know put those thoughts across, even to people who are older than you or more senior than you.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, age never bothered me then or now, mm-hmm. uh, but I wasn't coddled. You know, there were no trigger warnings. Yeah, there were no safe rooms to go to. Mm. Uh, we were in the, listen, the 60s was the Vietnam War. It was Woodstock. It was the Beatles. It was the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was uh, just after Sputnik putting a man on the moon. Uh, it was the assassination of both Kennedys, the assassination of Martin Luther King. It was the inner cities burning. In all of my existence, there's never been a decade like the 60s. And when you live through something like that, you know, terrorism today does not scare you all that much. Mm. And, and you learn a, a great deal about your equilibrium and your ability to deal with things. I had street smarts, and I don't believe enough people that have street smarts. I get a big kick out of these people who have a business card or LinkedIn or wherever, and they've got fourteen initials after their names. You know, <laughs> I can actually put nineteen initials after my names, after my name, and that in two bucks will get me on a bus. What the <laughs> fuck is it? I think
1: it, I think that is exactly what you're talking about. In that, the more initials, that's trying to build that respect it's trying to signal that respect. If I were to guess your belief is that respect will come if the value you can offer is, is public and it's known and it's proven as opposed to it's just formal education you've obtained.
2: I don't care about your credentials, your initials, your degrees, where you went to school, who you know. All I care about is your behavior. And what I see, you know, in organizations, What I've learned is nobody believes what they hear or what they read. They only believe what they see. And that's how you change cultures. You need avatars who change behavior so people say, okay, that's the right behavior. And so with anyone else, credentials mean nothing to me. I believe what I see. Your behaviors will either impress me or not.
1: Well, Alan, I want to get into it, because now I'm really interested in the tactical nature of what you talk about here. So the new book, Fearless Leadership, Overcoming Reticence, Procrastination, and the Voices of Doubt Inside Your Head. Let's talk about this for a minute. So uh, given your prolific writing, obviously there's new ideas you want to write on consistently. What was it about fearlessness that you felt was, this was the one I want to write now?
2: Oh, another good question. So, you know, the, the, the genesis here is, you know, I was originally helping consultants, improve their incomes by focusing on value and not hourly billing, which is, you know, amateurish and idiotic. And so I was talking about value based fees. And I said to myself, why aren't people charging more for their value? And then I realized it was about self esteem and they didn't think they were worth it. You know, we go back to the little guy in their shoulder. And so then I started dealing with self esteem. You know, I wrote me and Dollar Maverick, I wrote life storming with Marshall Goldsmith. Uh, and, but then I started asking myself, and this is this curiosity we talked about earlier. Well, why do people have such low self esteem as a rule? And I realized it's because they are afraid. And today, more than ever, people are afraid because it's a world with a lot of volatility and a lot of disruption, and a lot of noise and a lot of threats. And so I, I decided I would deal with fear. One of the things that I keep getting hung
1: up on is sometimes I wonder, is the knowledge I have worth that value? You know, is the experience I have worth that value? And also, if it's worth that value, there's somebody else that can do it better. I'm sure that's something you speak to. How, what do you, how do you overcome that? Or what are your beliefs around that?
2: Well, that's a little guy again. And, and you have to convert this little guy to an advocate and a cheerleader instead of this this uh, this gloomy Gus. And the way you do that is this. Uh, as far as you're concerned, there is nobody better. And as far as you're concerned, at this juncture with this client or prospect, you're the person. Hmm. And you can improve their condition. I mean, what does a consultant do? A consultant improves the client's condition so that when you walk away, the client's better off. You know, there's this old saw, a consultant is someone who comes to work on a problem and remains to become a part of it, you know? <laughs> you, you get in, you do your work, and you leave, and the client's better off. Uh, and you have to be absolutely convinced of your value in doing that. And what happens is value is based on results. How is the client better off? But people revert to methodology and they talk about coaching, or they talk about training, or they talk about providing a report, and none of that's important. Those are tactics, those are inputs. The only importance is an output. You know, a typical human resources objective, you know, you, HR to me stands for hardly relevant. A, a <laughs> typical human resources objective is, oh, let's have better alignment. Well, who the, cares, who the hell cares we have better alignment if the company's not gonna do better, right? Yeah. What you want is more market share. What you want is less attrition. What you want is expenses cut. What you want is higher revenues those are results. And in Mm. our personal lives, as well as our professional lives, it's results that matter.
1: Cutting to the, we call it the job to be done. That's really what you're talking about. It's you. and, And I think that's probably a key requirement of a good consultant is to be able to decipher what that job to be done is. What is the true output that they want? Is that something you see often? The output is kind of murky.
2: Well, I've taught people how to, uh, how to resolve the murkiness. I've taught people how to shine a flashlight into dark corners, because there's always a demonstrable clear output that needs to be achieved. But we louse it up. You know, we we get mired in things. But what you have to say to a, um, a client is, or a prospect, why are you talking to me? What is the condition right now that you need improved? The problem you need solved? What would make you happier after you and I are done? And if if you can't answer that question, then I shouldn't be here. But -hmm. the the very fact, by dint of your being, there, by dint of the client, the buyer, taking time to meet with you, the buyer wants something done. And I'll tell you something, behind every corporate objective is a personal objective. So when a client says, you know, our attrition's too high, Uh, we need to find better candidates who stay with us, what the client's also saying is, I'm getting sick and tired of interviewing people. When the client says, "Uh, we need better teamwork, our teams need to be more productive, uh have, have be more self directed what the client is also saying is i'm tired of being a referee among these teams and so that personal objective is another way to improve the client's condition let's
1: imagine we are anyone listening so we could be an entrepreneur we could be a, a senior leader at a company we could be a new people leader doesn't really matter for the purposes of this one of the things as we talk about fear is understanding and i know you talk about this in your book what are things we actually should be afraid of? What are, what are the market forces we need to worry about, those externalities, versus what are the ones that our ego or biases are telling us? How do we start to decipher where we should focus as leaders and what is just noise?
2: Well, you know, in the book I talk about, the classic is, you know, fight or flight. But I've added there fight, flight, or fright. And, you know, a deer gets stuck in the headlights. Well, a deer's not going to fight you. Uh, but you, you think, okay, the deer should run away, that's flight, but the deer is so stunned and uncertain of the headlights that it's frightened in inactivity and gets itself hit by the car. And so we have these three conditions. And I think we should be fearful, truly fearful, of somebody with a gun, of a tornado coming down the street, of fires that are out of control, of, of uh, an illness that we've contracted that is very serious, and so forth. Those are legitimate areas where we should be frightened but we shouldn't be frightened about a competitor's actions or walking into the office of a buyer or dealing with a problem employee or or having to resolve our financial issues. Because when you're frightened, uh, it forces us into uh, inferior actions. Fright, like guilt, masks talent. And so if you walk up on a stage frightened, your voice tightens up, you perspire, you don't use the gestures you should, and you're not as effective. And then you say, I was right. I should be afraid of the illness. No, no, no. Your fear got in the way. So be afraid of legitimate things that can harm your life. But don't be afraid of things that won't harm your life and are just threatening to your ego.
1: Do you have any tools or kind of on the spot actions or thought processes to figure out what are those, really to uncover the fears we might not be aware of that are holding us back?
2: Yes. Uh, And let me mention too, the book, there's a link in the book where you can take for free. You can take a test on my site, a fearlessness test, and you get feedback about where you are as a leader and and how many people are in your category. Oh, great. So it's in the book. Okay, perfect. But to answer your question, um, you have to ask yourself, why am I afraid? And if you sincerely ask yourself why you're afraid and you're honest with yourself, you'll uncover the hidden fears. And the hidden fears are the ones that are killing you. I call them overt and covert in the book. And these covert fears are hitting you, uh, killing you. And you don't realize that, well, what you have a fear of is uh, going out with a new couple uh, because you're afraid that uh, they won't respect your work or you look inadequate or the other person might be more successful than you or be driving a better car than you. Uh, You have to get over that stuff. And some of these fears are therapeutic. That is, they come from way back uh, in your history. Something your parents said or your siblings said some experience And these need to be therapeutically rooted out, you know, by by a clinician, by a therapist. The covert fears other people can give you feedback on. And you say to your partner, your wife, your spouse, a trusted other, you know, how did I react there? And they'll say to you, you walked up on stage and said, I don't often deal with this topic, so I apologize. You never start a speech by apologizing. You start a speech with a story. And so that's something other people can see and give you feedback on. But your point is very important. The way to deal with fears is to find their cause.
1: Well, how do we do that?
2: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think yeah. it,
1: the reason I ask is I, I I, think a lot of this, you know, don't be afraid. Fear is gonna hold us back. It's going to cause us to do things irrationally. All makes sense. I think the reason people don't is because Listen, it's harder done than said. I'm
2: gonna ask you a question. If a plant dies, you have a plant in a pot and it dies, why don't it die? Give me, why, why would you think it died?
1: Because I didn't water it or give it sunlight? Okay, good. Why why else might it have died? Uh, Too cold? Too hot? Temperature? Why else might it have died? Because it got some kind of disease or bug or something?
2: So there are three causes. Another cause is it died of old age. You know, it it, it reached (laughs) the period normal for that kind of plant, and that was it. And so there are four causes. And so now you ask yourself, okay, which of these causes was the result here, and how do I avoid it in the future? One of them you can't avoid, you know, aging. But the others you can And so you teach yourself these things. So when you say it's so hard, it isn't so hard. You have to say, what was the cause of my being so unprepared or so nervous when I walked up there? I'll give you a good example. I work with a guy who said, I only wear blue shirts and blue suits because for the first 10 minutes of my speech, I perspire so much. I'm afraid it will show through. I'm very nervous. After the 10 minutes, I'm fine. Can you help me? And I said to him, does it happen every time? That's a that's a typical coach's consultant's question. Mm-hmm. He said, No, it happens 90% of the time. I said, what's the commonality and distinction about the other 10%? He said, Well, the other 10%, uh, I'm usually checking with my introducer or somebody with a sound check, and suddenly I'm on. I said, and then you don't perspire. He said, Right. I said, here's what I want you to do. Every speech from now on, I want you to engage somebody in the audience casually or somebody backstage casually get into a discussion about last night's TV or how the sound equipment works until you actually hear your name and you're being introduced. Because what's happening is if you're not engaged in that 10 minutes, you're driving yourself crazy. And Hmm. he did that and it was solved. And that's how you get rid of fears that you don't realize. So do you
1: think it's fair to start with the result we, the result we got that we don't want and then ask the why behind that?
2: Yes, absolutely. You cannot change anything unless you find the cause. All you can do is adapt to it. So if there's a hole in the roof, if you have a leak, you can put a bucket under it, that's an adaptive action. But the the question is, what caused it? Because only that allows you to fix it. If you've got a lousy relationship with somebody at work, you can choose not to meet with them or to walk on eggshells or whatever it is. But you should ask yourself, what's the cause of this? Am I afraid of the competition? Did I say something to offend them? Uh, Do we represent different interests? And then you can fix the relationship.
1: This kind of reminds me of, I know there's a part in your book where you talk about a topic that has really received excellent feedback on our podcast. And that's this idea of resilience. And you actually have some specific behaviors. So, you know, what I'd like to end on is for people who have kind of heard this, it's really sparked, lit a fire. I need to understand my fears. I need to understand how they're not serving me. And over the long haul, I want to change my behavior so I'm more resilient to these things. I can walk into the meeting and feel confident. I can get on the stage and crush it. I can trust my opinions as a leader. What are some ways to build that resilience over time to be less owned or less really controlled by this fear?
2: Well, you said three or four of my books. And uh, resilience, which is bouncing back from setback so that you're better than ever and not worse than ever. I think is based on having certain key traits. I call them hyper traits. And we don't have time to go into all seven or eight, but I'll give you an example. One hyper trait is use of language, so that you know how to use language really well to control situations. Another hyper trait is refusal to listen to unsolicited feedback, uh, which causes you damage as we talked about before. Now, when you apply these kinds of hyper traits, you master them, because these are skills you can learn, something bad happens And instead of saying to yourself, Oh my God, I'm horrible, you say, Okay, how do I bounce back from this? Uh, And instead of engaging in dread about the future, you engage in opportunism. Now, I'm going to give you the the really important thing to focus on here for all your listeners. And and, and this is it. When you have something that goes wrong, do not generalize it, isolate it. And so somebody doesn't buy something, you say, this person did not buy on this day under these conditions. You don't say you're a lousy marketer. When you have a victory, then you generalize it. So somebody accepts your proposal. You don't say, I got lucky today. This person accepted my proposal, whereas others haven't. You say, I am a great marketer. And if you have young kids, you'll find this to be absolutely crucial. If a kid makes an error on the ball field, you don't tell the kid that he or she is clumsy. You say, that was a tough kick. Anybody would have had trouble with that. The rest of the game, you were fine. But when the kid comes back with a 95 on the history test, you don't say, hey, you got lucky today, or that wasn't as good as your sister's 98. You say you're turning into a scholar. And so you isolate negatives and you generalize positives. And that's how you gain resilience.
1: I love that, especially as a father. You know, it's uh You got it. It's a useful thing. Well, Alan, I really appreciate your time. We've been talking about the new book, Fearless Leadership. Before we let you go, I just wanted to see if there, you know, obviously you have so much work out there. For those that want to learn more, want to follow, like what they've heard, where, sh- where else should we go to find you and learn about you? The
2: best place is alanweiss.com. A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. You'll find hundreds of free textual materials, audio and video, all free, You'll find all of my uh, monthly columns. I do five or six monthly and weekly columns. I do monthly audio and video. uh, And you'll find all kinds of resources. And if you're interested in attending my experiences or being coached, all of that is there as well. That's the best place, alanweiss.com.
0: Appreciate you sticking around and hope you enjoyed that interview with Alan Weiss. His book, Fearless leadership, overcoming reticence, procrastination, and the voices of doubt inside your head can be found at your local bookstore. At the end of every Smart People Podcast episode, I tell you the same thing, but if you're new, welcome. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe, download, tell your friends, rate and review on any podcast player you listen. And of course, you can sign up for a newsletter over at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon, we'd greatly appreciate that. Just head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.